You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, Happy New Year again. So today, uh, we start our Epiphany series. Um, Friday was um, Epiphany, uh, Three Kings Day, if you're Puerto Rican. And um, it starts a new season. Uh, Epiphany just means revelation or manifestation. Um, But it's been a while, perhaps, since I've referenced the icons on our walls. But they do represent the six major seasons of the Christian calendar. So we start with Advent, which we've come through, and Christmas time, and now we're on the third one, which is Epiphany, uh, followed then by Lent, Easter, and of course, uh, Pentecost. But uh, a couple of things about Epiphany. The Epiphany, the revelation, is Jesus, right? It's about who Jesus is, and then of course, what Jesus is up to. We don't really separate his being from his doing, like the person of Christ from the work of Christ. But the first Sunday Epiphany, Uh, The text is always one of the gospel texts that talk about Jesus' baptism. And the last Sunday of Epiphany is a text um, that's from one of the, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, one of the texts that talk about the transfiguration, when Jesus is kind of transformed into a figure of light, and and Peter, James, and John see Jesus, and Moses, and Elijah. Those two texts, the text about baptism and the text about the transfiguration, are the two times that a voice comes from heaven and speaks of Jesus, or sometimes to Jesus, saying, this is my son. So we get it in the baptism story. This is my my son, the beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. And then in the transfiguration story, we get an additional kind of instruction, like, this is my son, listen to him. And the listen to him there doesn't just mean like, like an auditory uh, just listening, like just the, the bones in your inner ear vibrating at the right frequency so that you hear what he says. But the listen carries this connotation of obedience. Uh, my father used to say to me, Robbie, are you listening to me? And I would say, yeah, Dad, I heard you. And he said, I didn't ask if you heard me. I asked, are you listening? And what he meant by that was not just had I heard what he said, but was I, was I going to heed what he said. And when the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him, it means just that. So that the, the epiphany is not just a, a mental revelation. The epiphany calls us to live a certain way, to be a certain way. In fact, what we find out about God in Jesus does itself transform us. It's where we got our title for the series this year, Beyond Belief. It doesn't mean that belief in and of itself is somehow bad, but it does mean it's insufficient if what we mean by belief is just mental acquiescence, like just saying, I think these things, right? That's not the end of the game. That's the beginning of the game. And we're called to something more than that. We just don't go down into the water. We come up out of the water and we live a certain way. Now, the baptism of Jesus did cause a bit of a conundrum for the early church because the text will tell us that John was baptizing for repentance and forgiveness of sins. So the question would would come, well, why would Jesus be baptized? 
And the four Gospels deal with it different ways. Mark is very blunt and just says, uh, John the Baptist was baptizing people for forgiveness of sins, and Jesus came and got baptized. So you guys just deal with it yourself. Just kind of work it out. Um, Luke, Luke is a bit more uh, subtle. Luke's text says that John was baptizing and that he was baptizing for the repentance of sins. But if you read very carefully in Luke, it will mention that Jesus got baptized, but it doesn't actually say that John was his baptizer. So it kind of like softens it just a bit. And then there's the Gospel of John, which is maybe, maybe the most unique. It never mentions that Jesus got baptized. It, it mentions that, that John baptized people, but, and then it says that John, when he saw Jesus, proclaimed um, the Lamb of God, right? This is the one on whom the Spirit has descended. Don't follow me, follow him. But it doesn't actually mention that Jesus got baptized. So if we only had John's gospel, we would have known that Jesus was baptized. Um, we, have to, we have to have the others. The text that was read today, Matthew, is an interesting one too because it kind of mitigates the issue because John realizes that the baptism that he's doing is unfit for Jesus. Like, Jesus is the wrong person. So when Jesus comes to John, John's like, wait a minute, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. Which on John's part, he's exactly right. The baptism that he was typically doing, Jesus was not fit for. That's the wrong baptism. But Jesus says to him, no, 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 let's do this. You baptize me and we'll fulfill all righteousness. So a couple of things that the early church did with this. The earliest church, beyond the Gospels, that is, there's another text. It didn't make scripture, but it was, it was pretty popular, particularly in North Africa. It was called the Gospel of the Hebrews. I, I love what it did, does with the story. It says, one of the brothers of Jesus comes to him and says, John is baptizing the Jordan for the forgiveness of sins and for repentance. Let's go and be baptized. And Jesus said to him, well, why would I need to go? <laughs> I just, I just love that. That's one way to kind of mitigate the story. But really, my favorite kind of comes from the, the early bishops, the theologians, where they said, and I think they're following Matthew's cues on this. Like when Matthew says, we're doing this to fulfill righteousness, right? We're doing this to make something new. And this is what the early, the early thinkers would say, the early pastors. They said that Jesus doesn't go down in the water to somehow cleanse Jesus because Jesus is the light. Jesus is what's good. That Jesus goes down into the water and Jesus' baptism cleanses the water. Like Jesus' baptism is what makes water appropriate for baptism. I just kind of, I love, I love that idea. But as, as the story goes, Jesus, he comes up out of the water and this is a very kind of creation-like story. Right? So we know in creation that the Spirit kind of comes down and hovers over the face of the waters. Well, once again now, the Spirit is coming down, and it's coming down not just over the water, but onto Jesus. It says the heavens were opened. The Spirit descends. It's very creation-like. In fact, some would say this is the beginning of the new creation. Right? It's not the first creation, but then there's the second creation. Like there's a first birth and a second birth. Or like, we, we were created, but then Paul will say we become new creatures. This kind of second movement in the big story starts here. And what is revealed to us is that Jesus is the Son of God. 
He is the one who is beloved. He is the one who is holy. He is the one who has the Spirit, and then, as we're told, he becomes the Spirit baptizer. So Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Spirit. John baptizes in water, but Jesus baptizes in the Spirit. So Jesus fills us with the same very Spirit that he is filled with so that we can become like him. So the epiphany here is not just who Jesus is, but then who we become in Christ, to use Paul's terminology. So this is what I think we mean by beyond belief. And these other texts, the text from Isaiah, uh, and even the psalm uh, that Caleb read for us at the, at the call to worship, kind of uh, ascribing to God these wonderful things. And all of that description of God, all of that kind of praise that goes to God, ends, the psalmist ends, with this prayer for peace, which I think is exactly what we get with Christ, right? That Christ comes to bring peace. And the, the passage in Isaiah said this as well. The one on whom the Spirit is given, right, becomes a light to the nations. Like, even that seems to be kind of not just good news, but new news, uh, we actually read that passage, or I referenced it anyway, on our Christmas Eve service, right? We were talking about Joseph um, and his, his kind of righteousness, and what did it mean that Joseph was just? And it's not the same kind of justice that we typically think, right? Because Joseph broke the law. You think, if someone's just, they keep the law, right? To be just, to be righteous. You, you follow the law. Except the law was that if a woman was pregnant and there hadn't been a marriage yet, that she should be stoned. That was the law. So instead of following the law, Joseph breaks the law. He doesn't follow the law. He does something different. And that is called just. It's a different type of justice. It's a justice, I think, that is revealed in the poetry of Isaiah when it says the Spirit is going to come on him. He's going to be a light, not just to the Jews, not just to Israel, but to the nations. And the bruised reed he will not break. And the smoldering wick he will not put out. Like at the very heart of this revelation, we find that the true nature of God is love and compassion. It's mercy over uh, sacrifice. It's sacrifice is not actually what God desires, right? What God desires is to be with us. And somehow we've been convinced uh, uh, of an alternative story that, that the nature of sin is primarily you doing things wrong and so we're trying to get you not to do so many things wrong. Well, if that's all that sin is, we paid too high a price. We paid too, for Christ to die so that you could do a few less things wrong, that, that was too much to pay. The, the very heart of sin is separation from God. What God longs to be is with us. And that's what God is up to. That's what God is doing. What God does is to sin is forgive it. What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin are death. Does God want us to die and be separated from him? No. So what does he do? He comes and he forgives sin so that death itself can be overcome. And this is who we see in Christ. This is what God is up to, 
right? And he's up to do, he's, what he's up to here is calling us to live much the same way so that we too are filled with that spirit. I wanted to read, there's a passage from Acts that also gets paired with Isaiah and Matthew here. And I wanted to read it for us. This is Acts chapter 10. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. For, for Peter, that meant both Jew and Greek. right? But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. We just sang that in the Cornerstone song. There's a line that, that, um, that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he is Lord of all. So here's the epiphany. Here's the revelation. That Jesus is the Son of God and he is Lord of all. He's not just King of the Jews. He is Lord of all. And if he is Lord of all, that has huge complication, not complications, it has huge implications. It does seem complicated. It has huge implications for then who we are and how we live. Let me finish reading this. We're going to come back to that, to that Lord of all statement. And that the message is that God sent to the people of Israel preaching peace. So what is the message of God? Peace. And how does he tell us about his peace? He gives us Jesus Christ, who is what or who? Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. We, Peter says, are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and Jerusalem. They, <laughs> that's the indefinite plural for you there, right? They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he was the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So God is preaching a message of peace. Look, this, this could not have been farther from the imagination of people in the ancient world and, unfortunately, people in the contemporary world. Right? We've been told that somehow God is against us, that God is angry, that, that God is upset with you. Listen, God created you and God loves you, and God has never had a bad thought about you. God, God became flesh and dwelt among us and died on a cross so that he could be with you. That's a lot to go through. He's overcoming sin, that is separation from God, so that we can all be together. Now, here's the implication then for us. It doesn't just save me. It also saves you. And then the work of Christ, if Christ is Lord of all, that means he's not just Lord of those of us who think the same way. He's also Lord of, of everyone else, right? Which means he's Lord not just of this nation, but all the nations. 
He's Lord not just of men, but of women. And he's, he's Lord not just of one particular race, but all races. He's Lord of not just one religion, but all religion, right? Which means that he, again, created all those things. All those people are image bearers, right? That, that Christ died for them and that God longs to be with them. Uh, one way, one of the major metaphors used in Scripture is that of adoption, right? Um, it's used in the, the Hebrew prophets. Ezekiel used it, talking about how Israel was adopted by God. Um, it's used in the New Testament epistles. Paul will talk about how he, he, both we have a spirit of adoption and that we will receive a spirit of adoption. It's also in the literature of the Apostle John. He talks about uh, a future time when we will all see the judge and we'll receive our new name, right? Our, our final name, our forever name, right? Our forever family. So one way to think about what the church is, and sometimes this, I think this gets um, a little confusing too. The church is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is far larger than the church. The church just happens to be God's group of people that have been called out to be God's instrument of establishing the kingdom. But the kingdom goes far beyond the church. Again, Peter said that God has preached to Israel peace by sending Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And we sing it. Christ is Lord of all. If Christ is Lord of all, then all of those potential conflicts that we have with people have to be reconceived through that lens. And this, this goes for everyone. It goes with yourself. Right? You know, some, any of you, like me, sometimes you get frustrated with yourself. Like, I was going to do something, and I realized that I didn't do it. <laughs> I feel Paul went into this sometimes. He writes about it in Romans chapter 7. He goes, the things I want to do, I meant to do, I didn't do. And some of the things I promised myself I wouldn't do, I, I did anyway. <laughs> oh, wretched man that I am, right? And I'm like, me too, Paul. <laughs> right? I made some New Year's resolutions just about a week ago, already broken them. <laughs> so there we find ourselves, right? So part of what we have to do is just take it easy on ourselves. Realize that the, God paid the price to be with us, right? And that God has forgiven our sins. Paul, again, in a different letter, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he says that Christ, God has given us through Christ the ministry of reconciliation so that he's no longer holding our sins against us. What is Paul talking about, no longer holding our sins against us? Isn't that God's like main job? Like job description, one, create things. Number two, hold people's sins against them. <laughs> Except that that's not the work of, of God. What, what God has done is die on a cross. If sin had a death, or had a wage, right? The wages of sin are death. If, if there's a wage to be paid for sin, Christ paid it. And because Christ paid it, it's been paid. That's significant, right? So now we have certain ways to live. Um, in that Acts passage... When it says, they killed him but, uh, by hanging him on a cross, by crucifying him. But God raised him from the dead. It reminds me again of, of the C.S. Lewis's children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
So I referenced it last week and I had kind of a negative assessment. I thought that his assessment of Aslan didn't really match who Christ is, right? He says Aslan is good but not safe. I'm saying that that might be Aslan, but that's not Christ. Christ is. If there's ever one person who has ever been safe, it is Christ. He is the ultimate safe person. <laughs> he might be the only one who is ever safe because he is completely good and he is completely safe because what would he do for you, he would die for you. And what would he do for his enemy? He'd also die for them too, right? So Paul says this, while we were yet enemies with, with God, Christ died for us. So <clears throat> just in case you're a huge C.S. Lewis fan and somehow that sets you at ill ease that anybody would say something negative about the storyline, let me come back around to that little novel and, and talk about what I do like about it. In the story of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, they're going to put Edmund, one of the four little children, right? Um, Peter, uh, Lucy, Susan, and Edmund. Thank you. They're going to put Edmund to death. But it's not Aslan who's putting Edmund to death, right? It's not the Christ figure who's going to kill Edmund. It's the white witch. They say it's deep magic. Right, that there is a price to be paid. There's an economy of exchange. Right? Before there were the rules of this group, there were rules of other groups. And before that and before that, there's this old, old story, right? this deep magic that says life has to be paid for sin. Right? Life has to be paid for that. And so it is the white witch who insists on death. And so she has a right, according to the deep magic, to put Edmund to death. But Aslan pulls her aside and negotiates something. No one knows what he's doing, but he's negotiating something. And then he shows up at the stone table where they sacrifice, right? And the negotiation is he's going to die on Edmund's behalf. And so the quote-unquote deep magic that they're following is the ways of the white witch, but what she doesn't know is that there is a deeper magic, deeper than the deep magic, before the creation of the world, that said if one who is innocent dies for others, then the, the whole system is, is broken, is changed. And so when Aslan dies in the story, a little spoiler alert if you haven't read it, it's a children's story, the stone table is broken. So not only does Aslan die and get resurrected, but because the table is broken, no one else will ever die, or at least no one else will ever be sacrificed. This is the message of Hebrews. This is how Hebrews also reads the, the story of Christ, right? So Hebrews chapter 10, the work of Christ, the person of Christ has done this, that no sacrifice remains. It's not simply that Jesus fits within the sacrificial system and he just pays the, the, the ultimate price because he's so good. It's something older than the sacrificial system. It's something better than the sacrificial system. His death brings that system itself to an end. No sacrifice remains because sacrifice itself is not what the Lord longs for. What the Lord longs for is for us to be together, for us to be with him. This is the revelation that Christ is Lord of all, so now we ought to live that way. So it means taking it a little easier on yourself because God's gone through a lot to get you here. 
It also means taking a little easier on others. The others you should at least start to take it easier on are those that you live with. And look, I'm preaching to myself on this one. Right? It's easy for me to behave nicely at church or just generally in public. If I'm at work, I don't raise my voice. I don't, I don't say snarky things, right? I'm polite and I'm professional. And if I'm at Publix, I'm doing the same thing with the cashier or the bagger. Or if I'm at a restaurant, right? I'm a nice guy, right? Surely that's what you think of me, right? But, but you have to ask my wife or children, right? What am I really like, yeah? I can be impatient, right? And, and, and I, can, I have a temper. So... We can be hard on ourselves, and we can be often hard on those we love the most. But if Christ is Lord of all, it means that Christ is not just Lord of you, but also Lord of them. And if Christ is Lord of them, don't think of it as just Christ is lording over them. Like Christ is Lord of them so he can tell them what to do. No, this, you have to remember who it is we're talking about. We're talking about the one who does not break a bruised reed, and does not put out a smoldering wick. That's the one we're talking about. It's that type of justice. It's that type of compassion. So the Lord of the other, the Lord of all, right, is the Lord that is compassionate. And he calls us to be like him. And so it should start with ourselves, but then it should go out to our families, and then hopefully then to others, so that we become to use another metaphor out of scripture, the kind of salt and light. We become the body of Christ, right? We say this at communion, that we take these elements, the body and the blood, so that we can become, right, the body of Christ and sent out into all the world. How is Christ active in the world? Through his spirit. And where is his spirit? Well, amongst other places, in his people and in his church, so that we are these kind of active agents. This is where we move beyond belief. If he is Lord of all, that's something for us to believe. But if he is Lord of all, then there's also something for us to do. There's, there's something for us to be. The story of the baptism, the reason I think the conundrum of the church, kind of coming back around and closing where we started there, it's only a conundrum if you're asking the question, why? But that's the wrong question. The question's not why, it's who. Who is doing this? And the who is Jesus. And as Jesus turns out, that he is the Son of God, the Beloved, the Lord of all. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.